It's Friday 13th of October and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, Neil Shearing will be on to talk about where interest rates will eventually end up and what that means for markets. But first, Israel-Gaza. The extraordinary events of the past week have focused the world's attention, but what are the macro and market implications of this unfolding tragedy? To find out, I'm joined by Chief Commodities Economist Caroline Bain and Senior Economist Liam Peach. Hi, both. Hi, David. Hello, David. Liam, let's start with you. I said in an online briefing we held for clients on Monday that this is an extremely fluid situation. I stress that we're not political strategists, but what we do do is assess macro market risks around events such as this one. On that note, how much has the local, regional, global uh, economic outlook been changed by what we're seeing? Yeah, thanks, David. The attacks by Hamas were unprecedented in their scale and exposed severe weaknesses in Israel security services. So the Israeli government has responded with full force, declaring the country at war and promising to destroy Hamas. There have been huge air attacks on Gaza and the government has called up more than 360,000 reservists. I think it's I think it's very likely that there'll be a significant ramp up in military spending in Israel and, and a huge transfer of aid from the US. I think for, for Israel's economy, the impact will of course depend on, on the extent of any conflict and the length of disruption to business activity, tourism and so on. Israel is a big manufacturer of certain pharmaceuticals and electronics. So there are some potential spillovers to the wider world if, if disruptions intensify in these areas. I think it is worth saying, though, that Israel's economy has proven resilient to conflicts in the past and been able to adapt over time, has often limited the impact. Some estimates, for example, from, from Israel's seven-week ground offensive in Gaza in 2014 was around 0.4% of Israel's GDP. Of course, this time, the impact is likely to be a lot larger. The Israeli military has said that this ground operation that is expecting to announce in the coming days is going to be on a much bigger scale than in the past. So I think the, the impact on, on Israel's economy is probably going to be larger than previous conflicts anyway. I think for the, for the wider region and the global economy too, I think the recent events have only really added to the risks facing the outlook. The direct implications of the Israel-Hamas conflict appear, appear localised. Iranian-backed Hezbollah forces in Lebanon have fired rockets into Israel and, and their involvement poses a risk to the region. I think the big concern, though, is whether Iran is dragged into any conflict. This could lead to greater disruption to global supply, particularly in the energy market, as I'm sure Caroline will, will soon talk about. Any impact on oil prices would, of course, have an impact on major oil producers in the Gulf, as well as growth and inflation in the global economy. I think those are some of the main channels through which we're assessing the risks of the outlook right now. Lots of speculation now about where Israel goes from here, next steps, obviously forces massing on the border of, of Gaza, bombardments of Gaza ongoing. I know it's difficult, but try and give us a sense of how you think this might play out. What 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 are the kind of scenarios that we're thinking about here? I think it's, you know, a lot of people are going straight back to the 2008-2014 textbook. This is how their last ground operations went. But it feels very much like this could be a ground operation in Israel that lasts many months. Previous ones have only lasted around a month or so. So it feels like this is going to be a major ground offensive in Israel. Probably won't result in Israeli occupation of Gaza, that's my view, just because the cost of that is, is incredibly high. It's, it's going to be militarily complex as well. So I think my, my general view in terms of these scenarios is that it's going to remain 
a localized conflict in Gaza potentially for months, but I think we have to see how these various regional actors respond to an Israeli offensive, particularly Iran and Hezbollah. So, I mean, this is the key risk, isn't it? That that what is a, a localized conflict becomes becomes that much wider and brings in actors like like Hezbollah and Iran. Let's talk a bit more about what's going on in the region. There's a lot of diplomatic maneuvering happening. We noted this call between uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, Saudi Arabia's leader, and and Iran's President Raisi earlier in the week. What does that all signal about the shifting ties around normalization with Israel that we'd, we'd, we'd really seen up until last Saturday morning? Yeah, I think the, the, the Saudi-Israel ties are quite an interesting uh, part of this. I think what we've seen in recent years has been a normalization of ties with Israel and Gulf economies that's mostly been focused around economics rather than ideology. Israel, of course, has normalized ties with the UAE, Bahrain, and I think this peace deal with Saudi Arabia now is, is firmly on pause in the wake of these events. I think how the conflict plays out will, of course, determine the direction of ties with the wider region. Iran is a complication in all of this. Some suggest that the attacks by Hamas were supported by Iran in an, in an effort to stop the normalization of Israel-Saudi ties. I think this, this could prove to be another big obstacle in the future. Saudi's ties with Iran had improved in recent years anyway, but I think this had caught a lot of Israeli policymakers off guard and they were slow to respond to that. I think they're now much more alert to these shifting geopolitical sands. I think when, when Israel-Saudi talks eventually resume, which they probably will do in the future, support for Palestinians and peace in the region, I think that these issues are, are very likely to play a much bigger part in discussions. In general, I don't think normalization of Israel-Saudi ties is now out of the question. But I think it's probably going to have a much more different focus than than before the recent events. Thanks, Liam. Caroline, can we bring you in at this point, talk about global markets? Energy prices have been the clearest global reaction to this tragedy. Can you talk us through how they've behaved over the past week and, and what's the outlook amid signs, and this is midday Friday in London, amid signs of a looming Israeli invasion of, of Gaza. Yes, certainly. Oil prices are up well less than 5% this week, which arguably has been quite a muted reaction, given the, the, the sort of huge risks there are to potentially oil supply from the Middle East. You've already mentioned the risk that, that Iran gets more involved. We've seen quite a significant increase in Iran's production this year in the region of about 0.7 million barrels per day, which is about 0.7% of global supply. And that's despite US sanctions um, on Iran. Uh, so it appears as though the West has actually been choosing to turn a blind eye to this increase in Iran's production, most likely because of fears that um, without that supply, oil prices would be even higher. If Iran were to become involved in the conflict, sanctions would have to be ratcheted up again or at least enforced. And we could see the market losing those 0.7 million barrels per day. And that's a problem because as, as our numbers suggest, the market is already in a deficit. So consumption is higher than supply at the moment. And the market really cannot afford to lose those those additional Iranian barrels. Similarly, Liam mentioned about the the talks between Saudi Arabia and Israel about recognition of of the state of Israel by Saudi Arabia. If one of the the conditions or one of the points that had been discussed was that in return for concessions to the Palestinians, Saudi Arabia would bring more oil onto the market. So. We've probably at least had a delay with that, if not off the cards altogether. So taking those two big risks to supply, that's also a big risk to oil prices going forward if if the conflict were to spread to other regional players. So a very tight market 
and and these enormous geopolitical risk factors now in play, threatening to wreak havoc on prices. Let's continue on that theme because we we talked earlier in the week about comparisons with the Yom Kippur War of 1973, not just in terms of the surprise nature of the attack on Israel, but also the potential response from oil producers. Is there a risk, again, that oil becomes a weapon here as Western powers step up to support Israel and Middle East producers feel pressure to respond? There is a risk, obviously, but at the same time, the world is, is a very, and the oil market is a very different place now. Back in, back in the, the early 1970s, the Arab oil producers were already trying to sort of increase their control over their own resources. So up until the 1960s, the oil market was dominated by large Western majors. So the conflict between the Arab world and Israel was at a time when Arab producers were already starting to show that, that controlling oil resources gave them considerable global power. On the other sort of side, on the on the demand side, we're also in a very different world. Back then, oil demand growth was soaring, and there were genuine concerns about whether the world was going to run out of oil. Very different now. We're in a world where we expect consumption of oil to be falling over the next couple of decades. So there isn't quite the same sort of power, I suppose, amongst OPEC as there were, as, as there were then. Having said that, I don't think we could rule out that regardless of the divisions there are within the Arab world, that supporting the Palestinians could be a common cause for the Arab oil producers. Karen, let me also ask you, uh, natural gas market has been another dimension of the market fallout from this conflict. A much stronger reaction, it would seem, to, to the news of the attack earlier in the week. What's the mood in the market now? What are the risks ahead? Yes, we've seen European natural gas prices rise by close to 40% this week. Obviously, it's not all about the Middle East. There are some other risks to supply. In particular, there's likelihood of strikes at three of the large Australian LNG plants. There's also been what the Finnish government says is sabotage of a gas pipeline between Finland and Estonia. But there's also been the closure of about half of Israel's gas facilities, the ones located near Gaza. So there has actually been a physical disruption to, to supply related to this, this conflict in the gas market. Looking ahead, though, I think maybe this is this is a bit of knee-jerk reaction that, that's a bit overdone. The, the the latest data showed that Europe's gas in storage is almost 100% full now, and the start to the European winter has been exceedingly mild, which will help with with maintaining stocks at a higher level through this winter. So, yes, there has been physical disruption to supply, which has meant been quite a reaction in the gas market, but I'd, I'd be surprised if the gas market can hold on to these gains. That was Caroline Bain and Liam Peach on Israel-Gaza. I'll post our latest analysis of this tragic situation on the podcast page, including the latest from our MENA team on regional risk. Suffice to say, we'll be continuing to track events and assess their macro market implications. Now, long-dated Treasury yields are down from their high seen last week, but they're still at pre-global financial crisis levels. There's still enormous uncertainty out there about where rates are going to settle once the post-pandemic inflationary burst is over. Markets are reflecting this uncertainty. Are we going back to a world of ultra-low rates, or will interest rates stay at elevated levels? And if they do, how high? Does higher for longer mean higher for much, much longer? The team is publishing an in-depth report on October 17th, that's this Tuesday, about R-Star in the post-pandemic economy. R-Star is an estimate of the level of real interest rates that would keep output at a maximum while keeping inflation in check. And it isn't just idle theorizing. 
The report explores a global economy through 2030 to outline the macro implications of our new estimates of our star, and it shows the tremendous changes that this could all mean for a broad swathe of asset prices. I spoke to Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing about the project earlier this week, and I started by asking whether the ultra-low rates of the post-global financial crisis era are now relics of the past. Well, I think the short answer to that question is yes, but I think the, the important point is to try and understand why that's the case. And this is what this forthcoming report tries to get at. So we look at what's called the real equilibrium interest rate, so R star in the jargon, and what's happened to that over time. And there are lots of reasons why it fell, pretty much starting from the early 90s. If you look at the New York Fed's estimates, and it fell through the 90s and the 2000s, and then it fell to ultra-low levels in the wake of the global financial crisis. And now we think it's, it's, it's picking up. So this is the interest rate that kind of keeps the economy in equilibrium, as it, as it were. Now, why is that? Well, I think a lot of it's to do with the fact that the forces that really suppressed interest rates in the wake of the global financial crisis, in particular, the kind of deleveraging and the need for balance repair, they faded. So it's less to do with kind of where the economy is now, so much as the kind of extraordinary factors that led to that collapse in equilibrium rates in the wake of the global financial crisis having now faded. Of course, the question then becomes, well, what's the state of the economy today and what, how are equilibrium rates likely to evolve in the years ahead? We think they've probably risen a bit already. I think they're going to rise further over the coming years too for, for reasons that we can get into. Yeah, well, well, let's get into those because, I mean, as you say, the the forces pushing down our start have, have been fading or have faded. And in their wake come these new drivers that are acting to push our star higher, to push up this, this equilibrium interest rate. So you have the sort of push and pull factors. The report goes into a lot of detail on all of this, but give us a sense of what these drivers are. What are the, what are the forces that have been pushing our star down? And, and what are these forces that we see that are going to be driving it up? So, and, and talk about how this process is going to pan out through 2030. Well, I think the first point to say is that our star is a useful analytical concept. It's a good way to organize your thinking when you're trying to assess what you think is going to happen to interest rates over a long period of time, and also the the current stance of monetary policy, how tight or loose it might be. It's a useful analytical concept, but it's really difficult to pin down exactly what our star is at any given moment in time. So it's like a lot of those economic concepts, it's a bit like the output gap or the, the equilibrium unemployment rate on Nehru. It is useful concept, really difficult to see in real time. And so estimating it becomes more of an art than a science. However, as the report makes clear, when you take a step back and you look at all the, the various influences on our star, on equilibrium rates, they're all tended to push in one direction, really, which is up. Now, some of that is about demographic trends that are likely to reduce desired savings as more people retire. That should push up equilibrium rates. Also, we're going to have the green transition, more incentives to invest around the green transition. I think that pushes up on our star. Most importantly, though, something we've talked about uh, in recent podcasts is the coming AI revolution. But we've spoken about how we think that has the potential to transform the outlook for productivity growth. But if that's correct, that will also push up equilibrium rates. Generally speaking, higher economic growth means higher equilibrium interest rates. So you, you put all that together, everything is tended to push in one direction. Now, start to put some numbers on this because that's obviously what really matters if you're an investor and involved in the markets. In the wake of the global financial crisis, if we look at the average R-star in North America and in Europe, 
we think it was somewhere between 0 to 0.5%. That's consistent with a lot of the work that the, the academics, for example, at the New York Fed have done. We now think that has risen to something like one, perhaps a little over one. Now, over the coming years, we think it's going to push to kind of one and a half percent and then ultimately to perhaps as high as two percent in the US by the next decade as the full effects of the AI revolution get going. Now, it's not going to be that high in, in Europe because trend growth is going to be a bit lower, but it gives you a sense of the order of magnitudes involved. We're going from something like 0.5% on the equilibrium interest rate to perhaps almost 2%. It's quite a big shift. Before we go on to the implications of all that, I mean, you talk about our start as, I, mean, I guess we can think of it as the rate for a Goldilocks economy working at maximum output without pushing up inflation. But at the same time, you did just say, you know, it's hard to pin down. It is unobservable. It is more art than science. Jerome Powell. So Jerome Powell, is, who is a believer in our star, but he likes his celestial navigation analogies. A few years ago, he gives a talk where he talks about navigating by the stars, including our star. But he also talks about the difficulty and that stars tend to move around. Going back to your point that it, it is unobservable, that it is an estimate. So so give us a sense of the criticism of, of our star as a useful macroeconomic concept. Well, I think a lot of those criticisms are valid. As I say, it's almost impossible to estimate in real time. And it's subject to so many different forces that really pulling down exactly where it's going to go over the, the coming years is, is incredibly difficult. We could think about what's going to happen to demographics and savings preferences and investment preferences and trend growth. But then thinking about the order of magnitude of all of those changes and then how it feeds back into equilibrium rates and whether there's other shocks coming on the horizon is basically impossible to to, to tell. So if, you, if you're using estimates of R-star to set policy, I think you're doing it wrong. You, know, you would never want to say, oh, we're going to raise interest rates by another 25 basis points because we think we're at our star at the moment, but we want to be 25 basis points above our star because that's sufficiently restrictive. That That's the wrong way to use estimates of, of equilibrium rates. However, if you're trying to think of broad orders of magnitudes in terms of shifts of rates and different rate regimes, then I think it's quite helpful. So knowing, for example, that real equilibrium rates are pretty close to zero in the wake of the global financial crisis and might be getting back to something like one and a half to two by the end of this decade, that's useful information. You're not going to set monetary policy on whether it's kind of 150 basis points, 250 basis points, or 225 basis points difference. But you can start to think about that when you're thinking about portfolio allocation, what it means for different asset prices. I think that is useful information to to have. And I guess if you're a central banker, just in terms of calibrating your monetary policy stance to make sure that you're on the right path. The work has got a lot to say about real equilibrium rates, but it also talks about nominal rates as well. Talk a little bit about how our forecasts for our star feed what we're expecting from from central banks through the rest of this decade. Yeah, so the key point here is to try and step back from what's happening right now. And we're not we're not really thinking about what's going to happen to inflation over the next six months or so. It's more about how do we think inflation trends are going to evolve over the next three, four, five years through to the end of this decade and then beyond into the twenty thirties. And I think as indeed we've made the point that when the Fed was talking about flexible average inflation targeting and so on and so forth, and we had these multiple objectives raining down on central banks, you could make the case, and indeed we did make the case, that central banks would go a bit soft on inflation in order to try and balance these competing pressures on, on them. And that as a result, 
inflation would be materially higher over the, the medium term. Because essentially, central banks would tolerate higher rates of inflation in order to meet these other policy goals. Then comes this huge energy shock, particularly in Europe, alongside the, the legacy from COVID. And suddenly, rather than having in inflation at 3 4%, which maybe central banks kind of turn a blind eye to, it gets to double-digit rates. And at that point, all bets are off. Central banks are doubling down on trying to uh, squeeze inflation out of the system. So I, paradoxically, I think the fact that inflation has been so high recently reduces the probability that it is at very high rates in the medium term because central banks have been shocked, I think, by just how quickly inflation has risen, just how quickly the inflation genie has kind of escaped the bottle. And I think the result of that is that they're they're not going to make the same mistake twice. So I think I'm a bit more confident now that inflation will get back to kind of two, two and a half percent over the medium term than I was, say, two, two years ago. Now, that is not to say that the persistent downward pressure on inflation that has exerted itself over the past 20 years is going to continue. I don't think it will. I think we're in a position now where most of the inflation shocks are going to be positive in contrast to the experience over the past two decades where most of the inflation shocks were negative. If you think about globalization, then the global financial crisis, of course, inflation targeting, the way policy frameworks evolved, all of that was pretty pretty disinflationary and the shocks tended to skew to the downside. I think we're now in a world where shocks are going to skew to the upside. So perhaps we get 2% average inflation, maybe 2.5% average inflation over the coming years, but peppered with more upside risks than than downside risks. So put all that together because what does that mean for nominal rates? Obviously real plus inflation, it gets you to nominal. Well, we've got maybe inflation at kind of two, two and a half. We've got real rates being somewhere between one and a half and two, perhaps. So you're looking at nominal rates in the region of four, four and a half, maybe at a push as being the kind of new normal by the end of this decade and the start of next. Quite a big change from the position we were in in the 2010s. Loads to read in the report. Lots of lots of takeaways there in terms of, of where rates are going, but also how this all translates into into financial market outcomes. Actually, not just financial market, because the whole point, I guess, of, of of the conclusions of the report are that this broad swathe of, of asset classes are going to be affected by by the findings from commodities to real estate to to you know bonds and equities as well. But but let's go from the theory of R star to the practice. You know, imagine I'm a wealth manager. I'm going through the report. How are its findings going to translate into my interactions with my clients? Well, I think the first point I would be making is that the era in which you could get almost no return from bonds, mega low yields, and even negative yields in, in, in real terms, I think that is behind us. We're, we're going to be in a world over the next decade or so where investors can expect that you will get decent positive yields from bonds, both in real and nominal terms. And that's a big change from the, the past decade or so. And the flip side of that is that higher real yields and indeed nominal yields should mean that the valuations of riskier assets are lower. Obviously, one of the, the reasons why we've seen quite big increases in the valuations of risky assets over the past decade or so has been because we've been in this low rate environment, which has tended to to push up on asset valuation. So I think the flip side of the coin is that higher yields means lower equilibrium asset valuations. The key question then for equities becomes 
how much of that is countered by faster earnings growth as a result of the increase in productivity growth and economic growth stemming from the AI revolution. Now, our judgment is that it will be to a large extent, and that's why we're forecasting quite decent gains for the for, for US stocks in particular over the next five years or so. But that that really comes down to that judgment that you get a higher rate environment, but earnings growth is faster because productivity growth and economic growth is is faster too. So better news for bond investors and you know, people that are saving for retirement so they can count on bond yields being higher. Bit more of a challenging backdrop for equities. On balance, we think it's positive for equities and, and have good returns for equities, but it's stemming from the what's happening on the earnings side rather than the valuation side. But I think the key point, as you say, is there's lots in the reports on what this means for markets, including real estate markets. And one of the lessons is that the implications are really wide ranging. This is not just about interest rates and bond yields. This is about asset classes everywhere. That was Neil Shearing on Equilibrium Real Interest Rates, or R-Star. The report's coming on Tuesday alongside interactive data, and that's available to subscribers of CE Advance, our premium platform. Check out capitaleconomics.com forward slash R hyphen star. That's forward slash R hyphen star for more info. Our website's where you're going to find all our coverage of what's happening in the global economy, from obviously the events in Israel to the outcome of this weekend's Polish election to China's Q3 data dump that's coming this Wednesday. Again, if you're a CE Advanced subscriber, you get all of this and much, much more. But that's it for this week. Until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.